3: Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set here. Any programme about science or scientists scientist today is almost bound to focus on space.
0: Mr. <laughs> 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 okay, Houston, the charger has
4: landed. Houston Station, uh, we are ready for the event. Thank you.
1: Welcome to Space Boffins with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson. And we've had a tweet from Matthias Carter, who wants to know where the first voice on our jingle comes from. All will be revealed later.
5: Also, we'll go inside NASA's rocket factory to see how America's giant new launcher is taking shape, catch up with Europe's mission to Mercury and celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Gemini flights. Our studio guest is poet Simon Baraclough and here's a flavour from his latest book, Sunspots.
6: Mercury's right up in my face. Venus is a hellish place. Earth has caught the human race. Mars is just a basket case. Jupiter's girth is a disgrace. Saturn twirls with dancers' grace. Uranus is rather base. Neptune
1: plods at wretched pace. Pluto is now lost in space. Excellent. (laughs) More from Simon later. Now, remember this from December.
2: Five,
3: four, three, two,
0: one. And lift off. A new era of American oh, That's wow, American. it's
5: going up so slowly. Oh, my goodness. It's sort of hovering in the sky. Oh, listen to that
1: noise. Sue reporting from the launch of NASA's first Orion capsule, the new spacecraft that will take humans beyond Earth orbit for the first time since 1972. Well, that test launch without a crew was on a Delta IV heavy rocket, usually reserved for geostationary communication satellites. Eventually, Orion will be launched on a brand new rocket, the largest ever built. It's known as the Space Launch System, or SLS, and I've been to see it taking shape at NASA's Michoud facility near New Orleans. Our guide to the rocket factory, where they built the Saturn V and the shuttle external tanks, is Pat Whipps.
0: Our rocket factory on an 832-acre campus is approximately 43 acres under a single roof with other large buildings, like the one we're standing in now, that may be up to 10 or 15 stories tall.
1: So what goes on in here? This is the start of your assembly process, because that's what you're doing here, you're assembling spacecraft.
0: About 70-some-odd percent of all the hardware comes from vendors, small and large, from all across the United States. We'll take all of that hardware, millions of parts when we're finally done, to create a spacecraft that's about 320 feet tall, a little bit smaller than the Saturn V Apollo rockets went to the moon. Ultimately, we'll evolve into a 130 metric ton version that will be about 380 feet tall.
1: It's probably best not to worry too much about the numbers, particularly with that disconcerting mix of imperial and metric. Put another way, the first four SLS rockets will be larger than the Statue of Liberty, and the next generation rockets will be 37 storeys high. Everything about this project is enormous, and that includes the specially built computerised machines that are welding the aluminium barrels, tanks and rings of the launcher's core stage together. They use a process called friction stir welding, which effectively blends panels of metal. The factory is so big, almost a kilometre long, that we drive around in an Austin Powers-style electric buggy, although most people get around on bikes.
0: We have hundreds of bikes that we use. In fact, for the longest time, the Michoud Assembly facility had the largest bike repair facility in the southeastern portion of the United States.
1: Now, we pulled up alongside
0: what looks like, I don't know, an igloo, a giant igloo, a dome... We use barrels, domes, and rings to put the major pieces of the core stages element together. We're at the weld station It look like two large stonehenge-looking features that have friction stir welders on them, and then some major tooling right out in front of those that are used to create the domes for both the hydrogen tank and the LOX tank, a forward and an aft dome for each.
1: Not everything about the SLS is brand new. The first four rockets will use spare RS-25 engines left over from the Space Shuttle program, and the solid rocket boosters are also derived from the Shuttle. The project is being coordinated from NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama, some six hours' drive north of New Orleans. Located behind the high-security fences of the Redstone Arsenal, The site is dotted with rocket and missile test stands and hardware dating back to the beginning of the space age. Systems engineer Dawn Stanley is well aware of the history around her.
2: We're using shuttle technology, we're using technology from Saturn, and Apollo program to move us forward. We're also infusing new technology. Our core stage is a new design. So we're using new manufacturing technologies to build that friction stir welding, additive manufacturing. So we're also coupling it with not only new analytical techniques, but new manufacturing techniques are really critical in getting an efficient and affordable rocket built. Uh, is that
1: the point, really, that a rocket is still essentially a rocket? You can trace that right back here at, at Huntsville to to the original Von Braun rockets.
2: That's exactly right. The, it hasn't changed. To get off of Earth, we still need a rocket. And so that technology is really the same technology. There's been some evolvability, and I don't want you to think the technology that we're using is the same as when they first designed the shuttle, because the shuttle evolved. Each launch, they were doing upgrades to the different components of the shuttle, so it was evolving as well. And so we're taking the shuttle design, the other historical design, and building on new technologies. And so instead of having, like, four-segment booster, we're having a five-segment booster, so that we have more propulsion technology to get us off of orbit to get to uh, the moon and beyond. And so we're using those historical technologies versus new technologies to get us there. So we can be affordable. We're trying to leverage that historical work.
1: Isn't that a problem with SLS and Orion? that administrations change, governments change, and no one's actually defined the clear purpose. It's become a, a rocket that goes to the moon or one that goes to an asteroid or one that goes to a Lagrange point or one now everyone's talking about going to Mars.
2: Well, I think that makes us unique and make us highly usable and relevant because we can adjust based upon the desires of our government, which is what we're here for, and the desires of our partners. And so the thought is that we are evolvable, so that we're not a one-trick pony, if you could have it, that we actually can be used for many missions depending on what our needs of our nation is.
1: Back in the Michoud factory, we've reached the main assembly hall. It's filled with a brand-new 17-storey-high welding machine.
0: This is not the same as something else even made larger. This is a brand-new tool the likes of which no one has made before. But the rocket we're sending, the biggest rocket ever sent off the face of the Earth, is also something we've never done before. Do you know it works? We know it works. We have already done demonstration welds. We're confident that this will make hardware that goes well into space uh, certainly farther than mankind's gone before. And this vertical assembly centre is the iconic tool for the core stage. And the core stage is the most significant change for rocket manufacturing we've had since we went to the moon in the
2: 1970s.
1: Pat Whips with me inside NASA's Meshoud facility, in New Orleans. And you can read more about the SLS programme in my latest BBC Future column and we'll hear other recordings from that trip in future podcasts, including some fascinating stuff about urine. And SLS, this is a genuinely exciting programme, but they don't know what they're going to do with this rocket. So the buzzword, if there was a buzzword from the interviews I did during that trip it was versatile this is going to be a versatile rocket that can do whatever the policy makers but that's a
5: good so, idea yeah I think that's a good thing to do because you don't want to be too constrained by um, potential missions that might never happen
1: I do think they need a purpose though I do think to get people behind this, they need to say, right, we're definitely going to an asteroid or right, we're going back to the moon. We're going to build a lander. We're going to land on the far side of the moon or something cool like that. Or this is going to be a stepping stone to Mars. There's nothing clearly defined, although this, I should say, is fully funded. So they will at least build certainly the first four of these rockets. I
5: think what was nice for me listening to that, was a hearing about a NASA facility that's different to the ones we normally hear about you sort of forget I think particularly being in the UK that NASA is far more than just Cape Canaveral and JPL JPL, which are the ones you hear most about and you think oh hold on there's this place in new orleans that's mm. just amazing but the fact that it's using new technology so it's advancing on because often it does feel particularly although seeing that orion launch was fantastic as you could hear from the sort of embarrassingly girlish i don't think excitement in my voice i don't think i've sounded like that since i was
2: about oh, it's going so slowly 12, i know <laughs> they do since seem all, slow though, yeah, don't they?
5: Yeah.
1: i was <laughs> struck by that that oh. was staggering that how slow that one <laughs> mm. appeared to really drag itself yes. off the launch pad yeah
5: but the um you know but the one thing that everyone was was talking about with Orion be, behind the scenes was, yes, this is fantastic, but actually it's not, not that much new because it was based on an old mm. design mm. and splashing down, which has been done before. Whereas you listen to this about the SLS and that was something that was also being whispered about at that launch was, well, actually the really big thing, the exciting thing, is the, the SLS, the SLS, mm-hmm. is that new technology, a welding machine 17 storeys high, for goodness sake. I mean, that, to me, is the exciting thing. That, and that was something that was exciting everyone on that NASA social as well.
1: You're the poet, mm. Simon. I struggled, <laughs> and it. the mm. people... So that wasn't an accusation. <laughs> no, <laughs> you're no, I'm, the I'm poet. happy to, to accept that <laughs> Uh, I struggled with, and all my interviewees struggled with, is conveying the size of these things. You know, mm. you compare it that the main weld, the machine that does the welding, is seventeen stories high. Mm. It's phenomenal the scale of all it's, How do you approach that, trying to convey just how how big, how massive these these sorts of things? It's like the
6: sun, are. isn't it? You're dealing with the Gosh, sun and stars. Well, yes.
1: I mean, the sun is such an unimaginably
6: vast object, although it seems very tiny when you start comparing it to other um, stars, which are. Uh, which dwarf the sun? So it's it's. I guess I don't know. You have to find ways that make it relatable, perhaps. And I think I think the thirty-seven stories thing is is is, is 17th, a good analogy. Yeah. Seventeen, yeah. All oh, right, seventeen was it? So even I think in your imagination, it's, even yes, it's bigger. bigger. Yes, <laughs> Absolutely. I you know, I just. Uh, I saw Interstellar recently and, yeah. and, and there's an interesting contrast in that film where they seem to use a very old fashioned rocket to get up to flight like from the 20th century to get up to this 22nd century <laughs> spacecraft that's being up there and that, that was an almost comical kind of contrast I thought.
1: Yeah the, the, it's the issue, you still need a rocket mm. rockets are mm. essentially, mm. you know the, the technology, the basic technology of this thing is pretty much unchanged since the early 60s and they're doing it in new and exciting ways with new materials and all the rest of it and it is very genuinely very impressive the welding techniques alone, they've only been developed mm the last 20 years so a lot of it's brand new and cool but the fundamentals are you need a huge great rocket Mm, if you want to escape earth orbit another question for you as a poet Mm. is evolvability a word evolvability yes (laughs) yes it is
5: (laughs) you've made that poet has
1: spoken (laughs) thank you this is the space Boffins podcast in partnership with the naked scientists you can find space Boffins on facebook and twitter and we would love to hear from you
5: Well, if you're a regular listener, you'll know that there's no such thing as an arts-science divide on this show. Our guests have included novelists, singers, musicians, such as public service broadcasting, who are on our latest podcast, and of course, today, we've got... A poet. They're all united by a love of space. So um yeah, it's great to have you back again because you've been on the you? podcast nice b- be before. And your new collection, Sunspots, mm-hmm. is out in April. That's right. Inspired by this big atomic reactor mm-hmm. there at the heart of our solar system. This year is the international year of light. It's the theme of the National Poetry Day in October. So, was that a happy coincidence? Sounds like I've planned it, doesn't it? Does, it? No, doesn't no, no, no,
6: entirely joyously coincidental. Um, I started writing the book four years ago. I had no idea when it would be ready, and I had no idea that the year it would come out would be would be this year. And when we learnt that there was going to be an International Year of Light, and um, we didn't kind of change the timescales at all, we just we just went ahead as, as planned, and it's just fallen quite quite nicely um, into this this very exciting year where the sun will be a focus again.
5: Now, you were with um, solar physicist Lucy Green mm-hmm. on the podcast when you, when you were last with us. Uh, and at the time, you were doing an artist-in-residence scheme right. at the Mullard mm-hmm. Space Science Laboratory. So has any of that inspiration from working with Lucy and other space scientists gone into specific... Poems in the book.
6: Yes, definitely, definitely. I attended lots of kind of seminars and meetings and uh, um, about things like um, magnetic reconnection on the surface of the sun. And I was and I was trying to find ways of turning this highly scientific concept into something that's that's formal in a literary sense. So there's a sonnet in the book which tries to replicate in its use of rhythms and rhymes, and intensity of the language, the kind of growing and diminishing of the magnetic fields on the sun. Um, and that's kind of. It's, it, it's a it's a way of almost subliminally talking about um, the sun making turning the sun directly into language rather than just saying and this happens on the sun or this is about the sun and for me, that was an in- intriguing challenge you've got
5: quite a lot of the the poems are inspired by different things mm-hmm. you've got this running theme about. Pluto <laughs> right. going on which did make me laugh. I mean we heard yeah. one with a, with a reference to it. It's almost like you're insulting Pluto throughout. Well. It's like a running gag. Maybe that's not what you <laughs> intended but it, I read it as like a running gag. It, it just made
6: me laugh. It is a running gag. Um, there are some very dark and serious poems in there but I wanted to get a nice balance of tones and atmospheres in there and the thing about Pluto is it, it's meant to be, I'm not really making fun of Pluto, it's more of a poignant, like a kind of poignant reflection upon Pluto's career. Of course it's got a whole new career now with, with a, aligning with all these
1: other um, dwarf planets etc so but it's um, a bit of a non-planet now isn't it yes yeah. it's going to rise again this year because you've got the new horizons mission. exactly it's it, it's it's coming back into
6: focus so i think that the poems are, you know i think people will, will, will think sympathetically about pluto when they read those poems hopefully and maybe get a bit of a giggle as well
5: well let's hear one of your poems
6: this one is kind of uh, i was kind of satirizing the blurbs you commonly find on on all kinds of literature but poetry books particularly i think and i thought what would it What would I write if I had to write a blurb for the sun, if I was selling the sun? Um, And when I read this and there are astronomers in the room, there's always a couple of big laughs at certain points. Unsundownable. Like Jupiter on speed. The season's hottest ticket. If you only orbit one main-sequence star this year, make it this one. Like Jupiter on crack. (laughs) I started watching at sunrise and was still watching by sunset will linger with you long after the last ray. Its Proxima Centauri meets Beta Pictoris. Confirms the Sun as our system's most creative star. Like Jupiter on crystal meth. Our greatest living hydrogen stylist. Once you've tasted helium, you won't want to go back to hydrogen. A luminous debut. At its core lies a fusion of hydrogen, hydrogen, hydrogen and hydrogen. Will appeal to the dedicated sun lover and casual astronomer alike. Oh,
5: I love that. I love
1: I the. Love I that. love the
6: idea <laughs> of um
1: of stars competing or, or being right. sold almost <laughs> like washing powder. Indeed, yeah, it's as comical as books doing the
6: same oh, thing. Oh, that's but, great!
5: Uh, I really yeah. like it, and I must admit that's what I like about. I've. Uh, I know it's not out until April, but fortunately, your uh, publisher sent me a sort of preview PDF. Mm-hmm copy and that's what i like about it is that it's clever it's witty it's accessible and obviously for us it's it's got a space theme yes. it. are, it's are like, you, what more could you want are you
1: trying to reach new audiences with this because th- there is a an issue with poetry isn't it that people who like poetry read poetry mm. other people tend not to
6: yes uh journalists uh, seem to be um obsessed with writing about the death of poetry and celebrating the fact it doesn't sell I don't think that's true actually I think I, mean, I think people turn to poetry often in terms of personal or national um, crisis and it's simply not true um, but um, I'm always happy to get new audiences but I'm not setting out to you know I didn't think well not enough people bought my last book. What can I do to make it? I know I'll write accessibly <laughs> about space. Actually, it's it's let's all come face from, it, you'd from you'd my direct
5: different. you write about one direction if you really want yes, to, I mean, to increase that, your fan That all-important
1: space, <laughs> space fan demographic. Yeah, well, there's an idea for my next project.
6: But, um, <laughs> but, you know, what is more important or more fascinating or brilliant than the sun? I mean, it is. I mean, we take it for granted often. But there are times when it comes back, and you know, and and our whole day is shaped by it. Our mood is lifted if it's visible or not. People talk about it continually, and people write about it all the time in poetry. But sometimes I don't think they realise. So I thought if I tackle it head on, obsessively, something interesting might come out of it. But I certainly hope I will get um, readers because that's that's the joy of writing poetry. Yeah.
5: Well, let's just let's hear another one.
6: I'm going to read a, a very short poem about the. Um, pioneering um, physicist Celia H. Payne who in the early 20th century found it very hard to get position in universities but um, she was kind of responsible her PhD was responsible for, for revealing the fact that stars were composed mainly of hydrogen um, and her, her central initial is H which is the symbol for hydrogen as well and I'm kind of playing on that so this is from the Sun's point of view as most of the book is some people just get me Cecilia H. Payne for one Absorbed in absorption lines, speculating upon spectra, ionising wisdom, writing its electrons, taking pains to see that H was central to herself and me.
5: Great, it's nice to hear. Uh, Cecilia Payne was she one of the Harvard Computers? Um, I think she, she she may have been on that them. just after the Harvard Computers, which is something I have a personal. She's connected sort of connection to. Them. With. I think
6: she joined them, and then she kind of. Um, and then she. Um, she, she, she moved, I know she was forward. at the Harvard yes. Observatory. Mm-hmm.
5: Yeah, brilliant. I love that. Well, within the next month or so, NASA's first mission to Mercury will come to an end. When the Messenger spacecraft finally runs out of fuel, it will crash into the surface after four years in orbit, gathering information about this little-known planet. Fortunately, it isn't going to be alone for long, as next year Europe and Japan will launch their first joint mission, to Mercury. It's called BepiColombo and consists of two spacecraft, the Mercury Planetary Orbiter and the Mercury Magnetospheric Orbiter. That's a mouthful, isn't it? And they will arrive at the planet in 2024. I was at ESA's technical facility, ESTEC, in the Netherlands recently and caught up with BepiColombo project scientist Johannes Benkhoff to find out how the preparations were going.
3: So right now we got our spacecraft all here at Aztec and we do some final acceptance testing. That means that we do not overstress the spacecraft, but we must make sure that everything is working. So we do some vibration in order to simulate uh, the launch stresses, uh, the vibration the spacecraft will encounter during the launch, but also we will test the hot environment around Mercury to see that every soldering or any other things uh, is uh, strong enough to withstand these conditions.
5: We've got a a picture of a composite spacecraft, it says, up on the screen here in front of us, and each shape, the Mercury transfer module, the planetary orbiter, the sun shield, which looks a bit like the cone that would go around a dog with fleas, Mm. um, and then the Mercury magnetospheric orbiter, I think I've said that right, uh, MMO, they all slot together then, one by one.
3: Yeah, exactly. At the end, they are all slot together one by one, and they will put on the rocket, and then uh, up it goes. When we do the vibration test, also here we need to put them all together, and that's very impressive. And it's more than eight meters in height of the spacecraft.
5: So, how will this mission build on the Mercury Messenger mission?
3: Well, actually, that was a big fight we had in the beginning. Is it worse to have Bepi Colombo after Messenger? But the beauty is that MESSENGER discovered so many new, unexpected things about Mercury. uh, They found that the planet is much more volatile than we believe. That there is a lot which we can follow on, because we have a very thorough instrumentation on board, where we can do very detailed characterization of the planet. So while MESSENGER provides us first hints, we can do the real close-up or follow-up, in order to understand what they measured. And they have found a lot of things which are at the moment not understood and therefore Becky Colombo is ideal to follow up on that.
5: And what would you say is the main thing that needs to be understood? Is it the magnetic field?
3: Uh, the magnetic field for sure is one of the things. Uh, there is some peculiarity that it looks like that the centre of the magnetic field is not in the centre of the planet but shifted and there we could do something to, in order to, to better understand it. But also there are some features on the surface which look like uh, active or recently in geological times, of course, active explosions where we uh, want to understand where does this come from and and what is the reason for that. And
5: that is unusual because I think most people tend to think of Mercury as being a sort of dead lump of rock.
3: Exactly. And that was one of the surprises that there is even so-called young volcanism or young... uh, uh, features uh, where we hope maybe even to see changes from now to when we will arrive. So we, when we compare our pictures with the images taken by messengers, it could well be that we see some changes. And if so, that would be really great or fantastic, way because then we could prove that there's really something going on on that, as you call it, dead planet.
5: Johannes Benkoff from the European Space Agency's first mission, To Mercury, I noticed that I couldn't even (laughs) pronounce it when I was actually doing the interview.
1: Mercury magnetosphere. I can't do it. Mercury magnetospheric orbiter. Is that right? Well, actually,
5: to be honest, the
1: Messenger mission isn't
5: the Messenger messenger mission mission to Mercury (laughs) isn't much better. And in fact, it launched in two thousand and four. And I was doing a TV report, a live TV report for the BBC, the One O'Clock News at, me- at that time, and I fluffed it. You know, I was going in the mesh- Messenger mission. I didn't do a but, mesh- Messenger mission. Messenger- messenger-
1: but Messenger at least has a, a point, doesn't it? It, it? it alludes to Hermes. Hermes yes. Yeah. yeah. Glad you said that, <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, you knew where I was going there. Um, whereas, you know, MMO, it's it's awful, MPO isn't it? Eo and MMO. Yeah, I as think you Simon was say that. pointing out during that he was saying you need a poet to come up with these names. You <laughs> need a names? you need a poet in residence to come up with these. Get rid of these awful acronyms in
0: space. Me I mean, and space. Rosetta
1: and Filet worked really Lovely. well Yes, yes exactly. Right. Okay, so, so they get it right you know often,
6: but um, every now and then it's uh, you get a tongue twister. <laughs> well, right? here's
1: another good one. This month marks the fiftieth anniversary of of a remarkable series of missions.
3: We are advised that uh, Grissom has separated from the booster at this time. He is in orbit. Momentarily, we'll have the numbers on that orbit. Flight,
0: fighter we're go. Roger, Capcom, we're go. Roger, you are go, Molly Brown.
2: Capcom from flight. Go, flight. Ask him how it looks. All right. Molly Brown, Cape Capcom. Go, Cape, Cape, Cape. Capcom. Look better from there than on a ballistic flight.
1: Control struggling to talk to <laughs> Gus Grissom and John Young in the first manned Gemini capsule, Gemini 3. Well, without the Gemini flights of the mid-60s, the moon landings would have been impossible. Those flights proved that astronauts could live in space for several days, spacewalk and dock spacecraft in orbit. Well, when I was at NASA Marshall in Huntsville recently, I took the opportunity to see one of the original Gemini training capsules with Ed Stewart, Director of exhibits and curation at the city's Space
4: and Rocket Centre. So this is the Gemini Programme Procedures Trainer. Uh, essentially, it was a, a fully realised trainer for the astronauts to practice all of their procedures for igniting engines and everything they would need to do inside the cockpit, so to speak, of the capsule while they were in a, in an actual flight. So this
1: was really the, the main, one of the main training places they spent a lot of time in here?
4: Absolutely. They would have spent countless hours in here going over their launch procedures, going over maneuvering procedures, making themselves completely intimately familiar with the interior of the spacecraft and how to operate it.
1: Now, I mean, this is very, very small for a, for a spacecraft, even though it's the capsule right at the top of the, of the rocket, the actual area that they can sit down. in, if we peer into here, it, it looks almost like, I don't know, the front seat of a car. Uh, you know, with a dashboard and controls,
4: two seats, that's it. Absolutely. I, I mean, you could really equate it to the driver and passenger seat of a, of a VW Beetle or something along those. That's a very small space. Um, and they could actually be in this space for up to about two weeks. That's <laughs> incredible.
1: Uh, I suppose they've got, uh, effectively, if we're going to keep with the, uh, the car analogy here, they've got uh, sunroofs or two sunroofs. They've got these opening hatches. Above them. So one of the points of this was so they could get out of the spacecraft in space.
4: Absolutely. One of the main objectives of the Gemini program was to be able to perform work outside of the vehicle, whether it was going to be assembly or maintenance. Um, They were kind of testing procedures for that. And so each of the crew members had a hatch that would swing open directly above them where they would not only get in and out of the spacecraft on the ground, but also could use it for ingress and egress while they were in space. Uh, And what was the the thinking behind uh, the Gemini missions? Well, Gemini was really a a developmental platform for all of the techniques and some of the technologies that would need to be used to land a man on the moon in what would eventually become the Apollo program. So we were looking at how to rendezvous two vehicles, how to dock two vehicles together, how to perform spacewalks or EVAs, can we stay in space for the two-week round trip it would take to go to the moon and come back without any adverse physical effects, and a number of other technical achievements that they wanted to see could actually be accomplished you look into this
1: i mean it, it even has the, the the sort of center center console like a car you can imagine the, the controls there being sort of the handbrake or the the gear stick whatever it's cramped it looks primitive uh, the thought of even spending a few hours in there you know i'm not sure i'd want to do
4: that to spend two weeks in there seems extraordinary well it, it would still be extraordinary, in my opinion, in a space this size. But you're also talking about a group of people, as far as the astronauts were concerned, being not averse to risk, not averse to negative conditions. They were you know, fighter pilots, they were test pilots. So they were of a, of a mentality of preparing themselves for extremes, and this kind of plays into that from a, a space perspective. The positive side to that is since most of these guys were fighter pilots and test pilots, they referred to this as the fighter pilots spacecraft because the way the seats were oriented and the way the viewports, the windows were oriented, um, it was much more like uh, a traditional aircraft in that sense than the previous Mercury capsules were. And they actually did fly this thing and that was the whole point really in space. They were doing an awful lot of, of flying around. Uh, that's right. The The ability to actually maneuver the vehicle in orbit um, hadn't really been approached to this level uh, in the Mercury program, and even with the Vostok, with the Soviets. Movements were predetermined. They were very limited. There was some maneuvering you could do, but it was very, very minute. With this, needing to test rendezvous, Um, Getting close to another vehicle and actually getting to test a physical connection or a docking between another vehicle required complete control of the vehicle, which hadn't been done before.
1: And what's your view of the people who who flew in this? I mean, just looking at the the narrow, cramped conditions they were in for days
4: and then with some missions weeks at a time. They were brave, tolerant and brilliant. All three wrapped into one because it does take a special perspective on life to be able to do this kind of thing absolutely
1: ed stewart at the excellent space and rocket center in huntsville alabama which is just outside the gates of the redstone arsenal that rumbling by the way you could hear in the background was a a saturn 5 simulator because in the hall there (laughs) they have one of the few remaining saturn 5 rockets and just to give you an idea of the scale, which perhaps comes back to this idea of the scale we were talking about earlier, if you walk from one end of the Saturn V to the other, it takes at least about three or four minutes. So that <laughs> gives you a sense of how big the rocket is and how big the SLS is going to be. I love the Gemini missions. I think the Gemini missions are just the best. And they are epitomised, of course, in the James Bond film, You Only Live Twice.
5: They are rather overshadowed, though, by Apollo, particularly... Um, I'm sure there are an awful lot of people who, although they remember the moon missions, they don't necessarily remember. the Gemini They are missions. the great unsung missions mm. of,
1: yeah. of the
6: 60s. Well, I know I know writers who've had to live in their cars for far more than two weeks. <laughs> but um, they can, presumably, they get
1: out at some point. They?
6: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean that's
1: writers, isn't it?
6: Yeah. You know?
5: But whenever you you mention the size and the cramped conditions, and that's the one thing that I recall. Whenever you see capsules, be it Gemini or Apollo, is you just go. Oh, it's like being trapped in a in a mini fire. Mm. You know, well, these because they
1: are literally trapped in their seats. There's no way to move around because also the seats are ejector seats. So if something had gone wrong on the launch pad with Gemini, this is the only spacecraft they ever did this on. The seats would come out sideways from the spacecraft. They, they never example. dared. There was uh, one Gemini launch that was almost aborted on the on the launch pad, which failed to take off, and they should the astronauts should have. Uh, press the um, the ejector button. They didn't. And they think they didn't because it, the, the potential of things going wrong if you try to eject from one of these capsules. In fact, in one of the tests, they ejected a dummy and it went smashed through the window. Mm. So, you know, it just would have shredded an astronaut. <laughs> Is, it digit- Is it the Gemini projects which are covered in The Right Stuff? The uh, the Tom Wolf. Well, it would be film, Mercury, or... and then on to Gemini. Right, yes, nah. yeah. I can't. I haven't read the right stuff for a long time. No, I neither. think that culminates, doesn't it? it finishes up with yeah, the moon yeah. landings. But the Gemini ones are the kind of mid '60s mm-hmm. crucial missions, really, that made up possible. Did we possible. see
5: a Gemini at um, the Chicago Science Museum? Yes, it's one of the small, They yes, have a small yes, one I there.
1: So. so this was the Gemini train. They have actually a couple of Gemini traders at Huntsville. Yeah. Huntsville, I would recommend that museum i didn't get enough time to to spend there actually because there was imminent snow there was a possibility of a centimeter of snow which pretty much as it turned out shuts down alabama they just look at the sky what is this stuff
5: well it's like like the uk you mean
1: (laughs) 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 so um but yeah i I really like to get about that fascinating museum before we finish we promised matthias some more information about our jingle now, the first voices you hear on it come from a 1950s British government Central Office of Information film about the then-recently-opened Jodrell Bank radio telescope in Cheshire. And here's the extract in full.
0: Hello, controller. I want to look at the region around Cassipierre. Are you ready to begin?
3: Yes, I'm all set here. Hereafter, when they come to model heaven and calculate the stars... How they will wield the mighty frame. How gird the sphere. Milton said that 300 years ago. And now the mighty frame stares at the sky. The great inquiring machine of the 20th century.
1: And the stars look down. Now, I think that sounds like the introduction to the Clangers. Oh, it's if you don't know bit. the Clangers, look it up. Fantastic! There's loads of great clips on they YouTube. Don't of the make them like
5: that anymore. Do good. They? You don't
6: hear
1: the word "good" enough, I don't think.
6: <laughs> Space and poetry again. You know exactly. Yeah. Paradise lost Satan lands on the surface of the sun at one point on this oh, journey. Oh really? I oh, on his flight I had towards had to... heaven.
5: Brilliant. The Space Boffins podcast is a Boffin media production supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium. Thank you very much for our guest, poet Simon Barraclough. Look out for Sunspots when it comes out in April. Thank you for listening. And we'll end with one more poem from Simon, but not read in the same style as a public information film from the 1950s. Oh, you said I could. Yes
6: yeah. I, I could. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna finish the programme with the final. A poem in the book, which is my take on a, and a wonderful speech from Richard II in which Richard II talks about the deaths of kings and um, I'm talking about this, the sun contemplating its own death and the deaths of other types of star as well Of comfort no man speak Let's talk of gravity Wormholes Nebulae Make dust our photons and with pathless rays Shadow sorrow on the bosom of the earth Let's choose executors and talk of wills And yet not so for what can we bequeath, save a grinding of celestial gears, spasms of a gas, the bloating of a corpse on the battlefield of space, rifled by crabs of crushing conscience? All the weight of guilt I held at bay through this long middle age, for God's sake, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the death of stars. How some have run upon their iron swords, like Romans carving nought into their breasts. Some haunted by the comets they have lured by making eyes across the void to guide their suitors to a fiery death. Some drained of life's blood by vampire lover. Those conflagrating through their store with no regard for future days. Some crushed by failed ambition turning tail and shrinking down to hide, dragging their vain light with them, so singular was their pride. Some lost in time, so distant from their prime, and now they fade, decline, all murdered. For within the hollow crown that rounds the mortal temples of a star keeps gravity his court, and there the antic squats, scoffing his state and sucking at his pomp, Allowing him a flare, a little storm to synthesise, be feared and kill with rays. Infusing him with self and vain conceit, as if plasma, which walls about our core were brass impregnable. And humoured thus, comes at the last and with a little pin bores through photosphere wall and farewell star.